Welcome back to Pete's Soup. I'm your host, Jim McCarthy. We're going to kick off our second run of new episodes with a timely topic, the flu. The American Academy of Pediatrics released their annual update on flu prevention and control in the September issue of Pediatrics, and now that we're into October, it's only a matter of time before we start seeing flu cases come in. Between patients and exams, you're going to get plenty of questions about vaccinating for, diagnosing, and treating the flu, but it can still be a pretty dry topic, so I'm bringing in some help. After earning great reviews for her performance as a frightened parent in our febrile seizure episode, my wife is making a return to the podcast, this time playing a mother who's not 100% sure about a flu vaccine for her baby. As a disclaimer, aside from not wanting to see when our son actually gets poked, she is completely on board with vaccines. It would be pretty hard to maintain a marriage with a pediatrician if she wasn't. That's enough introduction. Let's start answering some flu questions. You know, I was thinking that I wouldn't get him the flu shot this year. I got the flu shot last year, and it gave me the flu. No, it didn't. The injectable flu vaccine is a dead virus, and it is literally impossible for it to give you the actual flu. After the flu shot, it's normal to have some body aches and even mild fevers, but that just means the vaccine is working. The immune system is recognizing and responding to the antigens, which can cause some symptoms, but it also means your body is going to be ready if the real virus comes along. As for the genuine, real-deal flu, when you get right down to it, influenza is a nasty respiratory virus, and the symptoms reflect that. Fevers, cough, sore throat, runny nose, congestion, body aches, headaches, chills, and fatigue all come with the flu and should get your attention in the right season. Notice that I didn't say diarrhea and vomiting. While they can happen, GI symptoms aren't one of the typical findings in the flu. If you have a patient come in with fevers, diarrhea, and vomiting as their only symptoms, odds are it's something other than influenza. The flu can look a lot like the common cold, but symptoms are usually more abrupt and severe from the start. To confirm the diagnosis, nucleic acid amplification-based tests have the best sensitivity and specificity, while the rapid antigen tests that you see in a lot of offices and urgent cares are reliable if they're positive, but have a pretty high false negative rate. Next question. I mean, does getting the flu shot even really make any difference? I mean, you get the flu no matter what, right? First off, influenza is bad. The virus itself can cause pneumonia, respiratory failure, sepsis, and organ failure, and that's before you account for other complications like bacterial pneumonias, myocarditis, and encephalitis. There is a mountain of studies showing that even in cases where vaccinated people still get the flu, their disease course is shorter and less severe with lower rates of hospitalization and death than unvaccinated patients. It's hard to say exactly how many deaths a year are caused by the flu. Some people never get tested to confirm that they actually have the flu, and it can be hard to decide how to count a death due to a secondary bacterial infection or worsening of an underlying problem in someone who does have the flu. But the CDC tries to keep track. In the 2017-2018 flu season, 180 kids died from the flu, the most ever in a non-pandemic season. Of those 180 deaths, about 80% were kids who didn't get that season's vaccine. So yes, the shot makes a difference. Is the flu shot the one that has mercury in it? Isn't that really dangerous? Probably not. At least not anymore. Flu vaccines in multi-dose vials contain thimerosal, a mercury-based preservative, to help keep the vial from being contaminated when the vaccine doses are drawn up. 
Because people started getting concerned about mercury, flu vaccines started getting produced in single-dose vials and pre-filled syringes that don't need any preservative since they're only being used once. Worries about the levels of mercury in vaccines are probably a little excessive. According to the FDA, a standard half-milliliter dose of a vaccine that contains thimerosal has about 25 micrograms of mercury, which is about the same amount you'd find in a 3-ounce can of tuna fish. There's no evidence that the amount of thimerosal in vaccines poses any health risk, so the single-use vaccines are probably just creating a lot of extra waste without affecting mercury exposure. Then again, anything that gets more people on board with being vaccinated is probably a good thing on balance. My sister's allergic to eggs, and so I'm really worried that maybe my son has that same allergy. And I know that the flu shot has eggs in it, so he can't get that one, right? He definitely can. We used to worry about giving the flu shot to patients with egg allergies because most flu vaccines are made by growing the virus in chicken eggs. It turns out, it doesn't make a difference. The amount of egg protein in the flu vaccine is less than 1 microgram per dose, and the data shows that patients with egg allergies don't have any higher risk of adverse reaction than people without an egg allergy. Since we're on the subject of contraindications, a history of anaphylaxis to any component of the vaccine is the only absolute medical reason not to get a flu shot, and even then you can usually give the vaccine in a supervised setting after an evaluation by an allergist. Most doctors do hold off on giving the vaccine to patients who have had fevers in the last 24 to 48 hours, but that's more of a judgment call and not an absolute rule. I didn't think that babies got flu shots. Isn't he too little for that? As long as a child is at least six months old, they're old enough to get a flu shot. The American Academy of Pediatrics, Centers for Disease Control, and just about everybody else recommend vaccination for everybody six months old or older, and especially for people with conditions like asthma, chronic respiratory diseases, diabetes, and sickle cell disease, all of which put them at higher risk for complications from influenza. With all the people they come in contact with and the fact that they're generally not very good about covering their mouths or washing their hands, Kids are a major transmission vector for the flu, which makes it even more important for them to be vaccinated. Anyone who's had less than two prior doses of a flu vaccine should get two doses at least four weeks apart. The reason has to do with priming the immune system. Don't worry about the details of the immunology, but you get a more robust and long-lasting immune response if the cells have already seen similar antigens. Anyone who has had at least two doses and those two doses don't need to be during the same season or even in back-to-back -back seasons, or who's nine years old or older can get just one dose for the year. I heard on the news that people get paralyzed from the flu shot. Is that something that could happen? Good question. There has been an association between Guillain-Barre syndrome and flu vaccines, but it's incredibly rare and generally reversible. Back in 1976, there was a small increase in the risk of Guillain-Barre among patients who received a special flu vaccine for swine flu, but the risk was still just 1 in 100,000 patients. Since then, there have been a lot of studies on the risk of Guillain-Barre after getting the flu vaccine. Whether or not there's any association has varied from year to year, but when there is an increased risk, it's generally about 1 to 2 additional Guillain-Barre cases per 1 million vaccinated patients. Studies also suggest that people are more likely to get Guillain-Barre after getting the actual flu than after the vaccination. So once again, the answer is the vaccine is safer than no vaccine. I hate seeing my baby get an injection. 
Is it possible to do that mist instead? Ideally, no, but there's some wiggle room. You should use the injectable vaccine for everybody. The evidence shows that flu mist has been less effective than the injected vaccine in the last several years. Flu mist is, however, better than nothing, and it's an option for healthy kids who are two or older. It is not an option for patients who have enough nasal congestion to interfere with vaccine delivery, kids under four years old with any wheezing in the previous year, and anyone with a history of asthma or immunodeficiency. I mean, what are the odds that he's really going to get the flu? And if for some reason he does, I can just call you and get that Tamiflu, right? The short answer is no. Antiviral meds, namely Tamiflu and other neuraminidase inhibitors that block the virus from getting out of infected cells, are not a substitute for vaccination. They can decrease the duration of symptoms by a day or two, which doesn't sound like much, but makes a big difference when you're the one with the flu. You should absolutely offer treatment for patients who are hospitalized with suspected flu or severe or complicated illness related to the flu, regardless of how long they've been symptomatic. Studies have shown that Tamiflu works best if it started within 48 hours of symptom onset, but it can still have some effect later, especially in the sickest patients. You should also think about treatment for healthier patients with suspected flu. Those are the people where the 48-hour rule matters more. And for patients with the flu who are regularly in contact with an infant under 6 months old or who's predisposed to complications from influenza. Because Tamiflu works best the sooner you give it, the recommendation is to start treatment while you wait for your flu test to come back and discontinue if the results are negative. Lower doses of antiviral medications are also an option for prophylaxis against the flu, but it's still no substitute for the vaccine. All the recommendations for prophylaxis revolve around high-risk patients. Kids with a high risk of complications from the flu should get prophylactic dosing during the two weeks after their vaccine dose, before the immune response has had a chance to build up, or for the full season if they have a contraindication to the vaccine. High-risk patients should also get back on a prophylaxis regimen if they have close contact with someone who's been diagnosed with the flu. It's also good for controlling outbreaks in closed settings with high-risk patients, which usually means an institutional or hospital setting, and as a supplement to the vaccine in immunocompromised patients. That's it for influenza. It's not too hard to come up with take-home points for this episode because it all comes down to vaccinating every person you possibly can. The injectable vaccine is preferable to the mist, but flu mist is better than nothing. When someone does get the flu, look for abrupt onset of fever, chills, body aches, and respiratory symptoms, and remember that vomiting and diarrhea are more likely to be caused by something else. The vaccine might not keep you from getting the flu, but the evidence says that it will significantly decrease your risk of complications and death. Finally, antiviral medications are indicated for any hospitalized patients with suspected flu and are an option for healthier patients, especially within the first 48 hours of symptoms. Thanks for listening. If you like our podcast, give us a rating and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you found us. We're going to be putting out another 20 or so episodes in the next few months and trying some different things with episode formats. So if you have any comments or suggestions, send them along to pedsoup, that's P-E-D-S-S-O-U-P, at gmail.com. I'm Jim McCarthy, and we'll be back next time with more Peds Soup.